Well, if you have your uh, Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open them to Hosea chapter 6. This evening we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. And if you are a a recent visitor with us and you're wondering who this person is standing in front of you, uh, my name is Chris Elsey. I'm the director of uh, church ministries. And my family and I have been spending a uh, a good bit of time in the recent uh, past in the fellowship hall where uh, the overflow worship is. Just making sure everything is going well there. So there are a lot of new faces here at the church that um, I don't know yet. And if you are here and we have not met, I want to encourage you after the service to uh, introduce yourself to me. I'd love to have the opportunity to meet you. Before we uh, begin to hear from God's word in the book of Hosea, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are seated on your throne, that you rule and reign over all things and give good gifts to your people. Lord, today we thank you especially for the Lord's Day, that we are able to rest and enjoy resting in your accomplished and finished work. Father, we ask today that you would make yourself known to us. We thank you that you are a God that does not hide yourself from your people, but you reveal yourself to us through your word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would transform us and that you would convict us through your word. Father, that we would not be like the man in James who goes in front of the mirror and then quickly forgets what he looks like. Father, open our hearts and our minds to the truths in your word. And we ask that you would minimize any distractions that might come upon us this evening. And that through your preached word, Father, we would desire to press on to know you more deeply. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Church, hear God's word from Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, many of you uh, are aware of the Rouses. Uh, You know Sam and Kayla. And if you do know them and their children, you probably also know of the heart that they have for adoption. You may also uh, be aware that they are even now discerning the Lord's will and whether or not it is the Lord's will to add a sibling group of three from Bulgaria to their family. And of course, I uh, reached out to them earlier this week to uh, ask them to be able to, to share about how I've been praying for them over the past few weeks, for their family to be able to discern God's will for them. I've been praying for Bobby and Danny and Ivy, which are, of course, the pseudonames for these three children in Bulgaria. 
And as I was praying for them this week, and as I was thinking about this morning's or this evening's text, I was thinking about how foolish it would be to think that these three children would hope that all of their life history would be gathered together in a file, that their pictures would be placed in this file, and that it would be distributed throughout the world, and that the end goal for them would be that people would know more about them. Of course, that's foolish. That's not their desire. Their desire is for that information to go out into the world, for people to learn about them, and for the end goal to be that someone would want to know them as a mother and a father. And likewise, for Sam and and Kayla, they don't want to bring children into their home that would merely uh, see them as landlords and get to learn some about their landlords. No, they want to bring children into their home that will see themselves as their sons and daughters. There's a world of a difference, isn't there, between knowing about somebody and then knowing someone personally through a deep relationship. And as we look at the the passage from this evening, we see that Hosea is writing to the northern kingdom of Israel, who by and large, as a part of the covenantal community, is just content uh, to know things about God in order that they might use that information to try to get from the Lord, to use Him. They're not interested in faithfully knowing the Lord. Now, this probably doesn't surprise you. If you know much about Israel, you know that they split apart from the southern tribe of Judah. And as soon as they split, they were conceived in spiritual iniquity. Uh, They immediately uh, set up their own religious places of worship, and they set up their own religious practices. Like an unfaithful wife, they turned away from their faithful husband, and they began to whore themselves after the gods and idols of other nations. And this is why God calls Hosea to take Gomer as his wife, because Gomer is an unfaithful woman. And she will serve as an object illustration to the northern kingdom of Israel of their infidelity towards the Lord. And Hosea, likewise, will serve as an object illustration of God's faithfulness as he continues to pursue Gomer and is covenantally faithful to her. But due to their uh, adultery and their infidelity, the Lord is going to bring upon them the covenantal curses that he uh, promised when he established his covenant with uh, his people. However, he also promises that he will not abandon his people completely. And as we look at the preceding chapter to this evening's passage, if you look at Hosea chapter 5 and you look at verse 14, God is compared there as this lion who is going to tear apart Judah and Ephraim, which is Israel. And then he's going to carry them off like a lion carries off its prey. And that nobody will be able to rescue them from the Lord's hand. However, in the midst of this sentence of impending doom, there's a message of future hope. Because in verse 15, the Lord says that he's going to return to his place. But when the people acknowledge their guilt and in their distress earnestly seek after him, he will restore them. And so my question for you this evening is, are you returning to the Lord. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, but can you still sing with conviction 
to lyrics like, Come thou fount of every blessing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Does it resonate with you when you hear Calvin talk about the heart being this little idol factory that's constantly churning out new idols to worship? If that resonates with you, then my hope is that you'll be encouraged by Hosea 6 to return yet again to the Lord. And then for other, others of you who are part of this covenantal community, who are merely giving lip service to the Lord while your hearts are far from Him, my hope this evening is that you will heed the, this text and that you will turn your heart to the Lord. That you will turn away from your foolish uh, trust in yourself and that you will rest and trust in Him. Regardless of where you stand on the spectrum, whether you need to turn to the Lord for the very first time for your justification or whether you need to turn to the Lord for the millionth time as a part of the process of your sanctification, it benefits us all to be reminded to return to the Lord. And also I would like to ask you, are you pressing on to know the Lord? Are you desiring to seek after God and to know Him as a wife desires to know her husband? This is an important question for all of us to ask ourselves. Not the the gaining of more knowledge about God, but rather a growing personal knowledge of your Father that's motivated from a place of wonderment and love. And so this evening I hope to give you three reasons of why you should return to the Lord and press on to knowing Him more deeply. First, if we look at verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that God loves His people and therefore disciplines them as a way of graciously loving them. It's a restorative form of discipline. Second, I want you to see in verses 3 through 5 that we should return to the Lord and press on to knowing Him because He is faithful even when His people are faithless. And finally, our third point I want you to see is that you should return to the Lord and press on to know Him because the Lord allows us and gives us the privilege to relate to Him through a life-giving relationship as opposed to relating to Him through dead, vain, religious ritual. So let us begin this evening by looking at verses 1 through 2 and see that we should desire to return to God and press on to loving and knowing Him because of the grace that He extends us through His discipline. If I was to ask you, what is your purpose in life? How would you respond? Most likely, many of you would respond with the answer to the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. You would say that your purpose or man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But should there be a consequence... Should it, is it okay for God to punish his, his creation if they rebel against that created purpose? Of course, the answer is yes. The Creator is more than within His rights to punish His creation when they rebel against Him and the purposes that He has for His people. Well, clearly that's what Israel is doing. The northern kingdom is rebelling against the Lord. They are in, uh, unfaithful to Him. And so in verses 1 through 2, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. And on the third day, He will raise us up, 
that we may live before him. Well, who is the one in this passage who is tearing down and who has struck down the people of God? It's the Lord. The Lord is bringing about his covenantal curses upon the people for their unfaithfulness. But who is the one who heals and who binds up? Who is the one who revives and raises up? It's the Lord. Because we see that his discipline has a purpose. It's to restore his people. And we see the purpose of this discipline all the way back in Deuteronomy. When he is sharing with his people these covenantal, uh, covenantal curses that will come upon them if they are unfaithful to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, in 29 through 31, it says this. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, maybe you think golden calves perhaps, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, like worshiping Baal, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over, the Jordan, to possess. And then he begins to elaborate on what these covenantal curses are going to look like. But then when he gets to verse 29, he shares with his people what the point of these curses are. He says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. Does that remind us of Hosea 5:15? If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. What's verse 1 of our passage this evening? Come, let us return to the Lord. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Do you see how his discipline is not merely punitive, but rather it's restorative? God's discipline is an act of grace whereby he is bringing his people back to him. And that's what the text is getting at in verse 1 when it speaks of returning to the Lord. The Hebrew here is indicating it's a turning from their faithlessness and turning to the faithful God. The fruit of God's discipline is the people's repentance. They're turning from their sin and turning to the Lord. His discipline is a gracious form of love. And that's how it's pictured in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, when it tells us that he loves, uh, that he disciplines those whom he loves. And those who aren't disciplined are illegitimate children. It's the unloving father who doesn't discipline his children when he sees them making destructive decisions. And so in the latter part of verse 2, we see the purpose again for this discipline. It says that we may live before him. What an amazing, amazing grace to receive from the Lord. We have all wandered away from the Lord before our adoption And even after we're adopted in Christ. And yet, that the Lord would still patiently endure with us. And that he would discipline us in order that we might live before him is an amazing act of grace. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Eustace is making those destructive decisions. 
Because of his greed and his selfishness, he turns into a dragon. Uh, And no matter how hard he tries to avail himself of this condition, uh, he still remains stuck as a dragon. And it takes Aslan coming along and taking his claws and ripping into the flesh of this dragon for him to uh, free Eustace of this condition as a dragon and to restore him back to the condition of a boy. I want to ask you this evening, are you experiencing the claws of the Lord's discipline sinking deeply into you this evening? I imagine some of you are at your wit's ends. You're discouraged, you're upset because every day you go into work, it's depressing for you. This job that was supposed to give you real identity and purpose is just depressing you. Or maybe for you, the health that you've taken such great pride in has begun to fail you. Or the marriage that was supposed to be your source of comfort and love is now on the rocks. Could it be that the claws of the Lord are sinking deeply in you right now to tear away and remove the possible idols that you've established which steal away from your full devotion to the Lord? For others of you, maybe you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord Because worship is just a a means to a greater end. There's some who are are moralistic and they are worshiping the Lord at their home, never missing a, a day of quiet time. But they do this in order that they have another reason to convince themselves of their piety. We may have a, a husband here who never misses morning worship or evening worship. But not because first and foremost he wants to love the Lord but because he wants to keep his wife from nagging him all weekend. Or maybe you might have someone who is lonely and never misses an opportunity to gather together with the saints of the church, but not first and foremost so that they can fellowship with the Lord, but so that they can enjoy the company of others. God's discipline that seems painful currently Might it be that it's a loving wake-up call that the Lord is employing to help you see that you have loves that are coming ahead of your love for the Lord? Have you begun to put on the spectacles of faith that allow you to see that what the Lord is doing is actually to restore you and for your healing? God's gracious discipline should motivate all of us to return to the Lord and press on to knowing Him more deeply. And again, we should desire, if we look at verses 3 and 5, to to return to the Lord and, and lovingly know Him and press on to know Him because of His faithfulness to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. In verse 3, we come to our second exhortation of the passage. The first one was, let us return to the Lord. Now we get, let us press on to know the Lord. And this comes right on the heels after Hosea has been accusing the northern kingdom of having forgotten about their God. In chapters 2, 4, and 5, he makes this charge. And so he calls the people back to know their their husband. Israel is like a bride that has forgotten that she's married. And so this call to know the Lord is an intimate one by nature, and I don't want you to miss that. The Hebrew verb for know here is the same Hebrew verb used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, When it says, Adam knew Eve and bore Cain. The call is to turn away from the worthless idols, the prosperity, 
the, the alliances with the other nations, the worshiping of the other gods, and instead to turn to the faithful God, to Yahweh, because He alone is worthy. And for them to know Him, not by collecting more information about Him, but establishing a deeply personal, experiential relationship with Him. Because God alone is worthy. And he gives the the reasoning for this in verses 3 through 5 as he shows us the faithfulness of the Lord. In verse 3, God is compared to the daily and yearly dependable dates on the calendar. Just as you fully expect for the sun to rise tomorrow, so even more so should you expect to count on the faithfulness of God. And there's an interesting connection between verse 2 and 3 that I don't want you to miss. The, there's this enumeration of consecutive days. It says, on the second day he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. This is in, indicating an extended period of darkness and trial that Israel is going to go through due to their unfaithfulness. The Lord is going to bring about the covenantal curses he promised. And Israel is not going to receive an immediate reprieve. However, after an appropriate amount of time, the Lord will restore her. Is it possible this evening that some of you find yourselves alone in the cold darkness of trials yourself? And the more that time passes, the colder and the darker it gets for you. I want to encourage you this evening not to give up, but rather to press on to know the Lord. Because just as dawn comes after an extended period of darkness, so too the dawn of God's goodness comes upon His people even more brightly after a period of extended personal trial. Press on to know the Lord. For those of you who find yourself spiritually parched this evening. Look at how God is described as the, the showers and the spring rains that water and restore the earth. So the Lord will be that restoring and refreshing to your soul. But then the prophet goes on to compare God's people in verse 4 with a less than flattering uh, description as he talks about their faithfulness. He says, Your love is like a morning cloud. Like the dew that goes away early. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like a Valentine's Day card gone horribly wrong. Consider the difference between the spring rains that water and refresh the earth and the dew that evaporates early in the morning. Do these two seem even remotely close to one another? Or the God's faithfulness being compared to the rising sun that gives warmth and light to the whole world? And then our love being compared to the morning cloud that early fades away. I think it's a safe bet that many of you would be unhappy if you knew that your spouse was going to describe your love in such terms. And hopefully you would want to uh, make some corrections there. But how should the Lord describe your love and faithfulness to Him this evening? A love... A faithfulness, a loyalty that evaporates as soon as it appears. There's no real love, faithfulness, or loyalty at all. Are you allowing other loves in your life to compete with your love and faithfulness to the Lord? 
Some of you may be striving hard after social status. Others of you may be trying really hard to be recognized as the top in your field or be known as the best parent in your sphere of influence. Could it be that these things are interfering with your love and your commitment, your devotion to the Lord, making your loyalty to Him look like the cloud that's burned off in the early morning? Well, if you find yourself and your love in need of recalibration this evening, whether that's due to a heart that has never loved God or due to a heart that has started to wander a bit, the answer is to press on to knowing your God. Look back again at, at Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Acknowledge your guilt this evening, brothers and sisters. Seek after God and press on to know Him as He's revealed Himself in His Word. If you acknowledge your guilt and you're chewing on and digesting the gospel and you're reminded of the fact that God has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west because of Christ and because He has granted you His righteousness, as you chew on that and you're nurtured by that, The Holy Spirit is going to strengthen your faith and your commitment towards the Lord. May we all be like Paul who can then say in Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 and 10. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 10 he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Like Paul, we need to turn to the Lord and desire to press on into knowing him because of the grace he extends us through his discipline. And because of the faithfulness he shows towards us even when we are unfaithful to him. And finally, I'd like to show in verse 6 that we should desire to turn to God and lovingly know Him because He calls us to relate to Him again through a life-giving relationship over and against dead and vain religious rituals. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here's the problem that the northern kingdom was making that many people still today are making as well when it comes to God. They were trying to approach God through this mere transaction of sacrifice. Not through the means that God had instituted, which was approaching Him through faith. The Lord is not looking for mere religious transaction. It wasn't as though the northern kingdom wasn't ever attempting to worship the Lord. They were. The problem was they made two fatalistic mistakes. Number one... They tried to worship God on their own terms. And so they set up their own religious places in Bethel and Dan. They set up their own religious practices with the golden calves. And then second, they refused to worship God alone. They worship or they attempted to worship God along with Baal and the gods of the other nations. And by doing this, what they were trying to do was cover their bases 
They were syncretistic in their worship, thinking that if they throw God a bone, so to speak, that he would then owe them blessing. And so this is what they were after. They would make this transaction of sacrifice, and now God owes them, in their mind, blessing. And that's why in verse 6, God says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. It would be a mistake to, to view that verse and think that God's saying that the sacrificial system doesn't matter. No, what God is saying is that when it is rightly understood, we see that the first commitment to religious devotion towards God is knowledge and love of God. And when that first commitment is understood, Andrew Dearman says, then you can begin to see the sacrificial system in its supporting cast to the first commitment of knowledge and love to God. Dearman goes on to say, sacrificial practice, rightly understood, is neither magic nor coercive of its divine author, but is rather a gift to the covenant community, intended as a means to greater ends. The people of the northern kingdom should have seen the sacrificial system as a great gift to be received with gratitude and not some kind of tool they could weaponize against the Lord as a form of divine coercion. Covenant children, this evening, I want to ask you, why are you here this evening? Are you here to worship the Lord? And are you practicing family worship at home in order that God might owe you? That if you do this, he has to bless you in this life and the life to come? Brothers and sisters, don't make that mistake. That's a mistake that I made all the way to the latter years of high school. It's like the the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. The youngest son, he demeans and disrespects his father by demanding that he receive his inheritance. And he goes off and spends it all in reckless living. But then he comes to his senses. And as we've looked at in this this sermon this evening, he acknowledges his guilt. And he earnestly in his distress seeks after his father. And what happens? While he's still a long way off, his father comes after him and welcomes him with a warm embrace. But what about the elder brother? The elder brother is doing all the right things, it seems, totally unlike the younger brother. But he too, his heart is far from his father. He's not doing these things because he loves his father and wants to please his father, but rather he wants to make his father indebted to him. He wants his father to have to give him good things because of what he has done, not because he loves his father. And it's this kind of outward obedience that is accompanied by selfish motives that we must not kid ourselves into thinking that God approves. I'd like to draw your attention to the word steadfast love in this passage. In the Hebrew, the word is hesed, hesed, and it describes the loyal and merciful, the covenantal faithful love of God. He calls on the lowly on whom he places his steadfast love to love him in the same way. And that's the problem that's being brought to light by Hosea in his book. The people do not faithfully love God as they ought. And so verse 4 serves as a contrast to to God's covenantal steadfast love. There we see that the people's love that's compared to the dew and the fading cloud couldn't be further uh, separated from God's love. They're not loving God. They're trying to use God. 
as the parable of the prodigal son helps us to see. They're using God by outwardly complying while inwardly having hearts that are far from him. But is this just an Old Testament problem? Or do we see this happening in the New Testament? Do you know of anyone else who had impeccable outward compliance while their hearts were still far from the Lord? It was the Pharisees, of course. And I find it interesting that in all the scripture that Jesus had in his arsenal, he quotes Hosea 6, 6, not once, but twice, both times, blasting the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, the Pharisees were taking issue with those who were returning to the Lord and pressing on to know him. The sinners and the tax collectors and his disciples. And they were trying to deflect and make themselves look right by pointing to their outward compliance. And Jesus says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He stands up and defends those who have returned to him and those who are pressing on to know him. And I hope this evening that you see in this wonderfully small passage the importance of returning to God and pressing on after knowing him more deeply. This important lesson applies to all of us as a part of God's covenantal community today. And my prayer is that for those of you who claim to be a part of God's church but you're only going through the outward motions of religious exercise, that you would heed Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7. Here he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, that begs the question then, what is the will of the Father who is in heaven? Is it doing many mighty works in the name of God? It seems to be what the people think because they respond in verse 22 and say, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We see that Those who the Lord condemns are those who are calling upon him as Lord. What you would expect to see of of people in God's covenantal community. But Jesus' response to them highlights the problem. They don't know him. And he doesn't know them. These souls are trying to relate to Jesus through their mighty works. And not through a relationship of faith. As Jesus' words, I never knew you echo through your minds, I also hope that the words, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. From John chapter 17 verse 3 echoes through your mind as well. And one last final warning that I want to point you to from Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 through 25. It says, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the uh, the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then he gives this warning of which we have been talking about this evening, about just mere outward compliance. 
He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. God's not looking merely for outward compliance, but from those who are motivated from a position of love, for those who have had their hearts circumcised by faith. And for those of you this evening who've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, you've been enjoying the benefits of union in Christ, and yet you have still found yourself frustrated by having your hearts wander off, remember His covenantal, steadfast love to you. You may not love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength at every minute, but He loves you with a perfect, everlasting love. You may feel like your grip on Him is growing weak, but His grip on you is firm and secure, and it's His grip that holds you fast. You may feel like your sins are many, but his mercies are more. You may be discouraged by the fact that yet again you need to return your heart to the Lord. But will he receive you after all of these times of just the same old having to return to the Lord? Look back to the first time you returned to the Lord as a prodigal. And remember how he warmly embraced you and welcomed you home. He will do this over and over again and again for his people. And so as we close this evening, I want to uh, point your attention to verse 2. It's in this verse that we're reminded that God raises his people up to new life on the third day. Now scholars, they, they debate whether or not this is a direct reference to Jesus or not. But that's not what we're interested in this evening. Rather, with great gratitude, I appreciate what Derek Kidner says about this verse when he says, It's only in Christ's resurrection that his people are effectively raised up. You see, we are like those of the northern kingdom of Israel. We have been unfaithful to the Lord before our adoption in Christ, after our adoption We have wandered away. We're the ones who deserve to be torn and to be struck down. And yet we look at God's steadfast love for his people. Because he provides for his people. By providing a true Israelite. One who is never disciplined by the Lord. One who is always faithful to the Father from a position of love. Never offering phony, outward religious devotion. And it is this true Israelite who takes on the full covenantal curses. He is the one who is torn. He is the one who is struck down. He is the one who's hung on the cursed tree bearing our guilt. But he's also the one who's raised on the third day as God promises. And for his people who are in Christ, They're raised up on the third day. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. Christ's victory over sin and death is your victory over sin and death. And so what a privilege it is for us to return to our redeeming Lord and to press on into growing in our knowledge of His infinite riches of goodness and His steadfast love for His people. 
Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is that you would speak to us this evening through your word in Hosea 6. Father, what a privilege it is that you love us even when we aren't faithful to you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, you would be honored through our desire to draw near to you. And Father, that you would receive our feeble attempts at worshiping you. And we look forward to the day when you glorify us and we can glorify you and worship you as we ought. We thank you that you've given us the privilege of bearing your name as Christians. And Lord, we confess that we have not represented you well with that name and pray that you, Father, this evening would begin to convict us and transform us that we might represent you in this world in a better way. Father, we've not loved you as we ought. We haven't loved our neighbor as we ought. But Lord, we look to you to continue to draw us and make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you help us this week to be of singular focus that our desire would be to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.